again and welcome to We Effed Up. I'm Teresa. I'm Cody. And we are here on our bi-weekly mission to bring to you all of the times in history where we as a species, as the human race, effed up. And today is no different. What are we talking about today, Cody? Not over and over every single time that happened. That would take a long time. That would take longer than we're, we're going to be alive for. Nope. That's going to be what we do every two weeks for the rest of our lives. Well, our our lifespans aren't we... enough to cover every F up ever done, though. No, it is. It's fine. All right. We're going to be immortal. We'll be heads in jars doing this. Like Futurama? Yeah. <laughs> At my shelf of the head museum. Um, yes. Today we are covering... Well, along with Jimmy Carter. Do what? I said along with Jimmy Carter and Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon, the president of Earth. And Bill Clinton. Yep. They're all going to be jarheads. And the headless body of Agnew. Yeah. Nixon's back. <laughs> yes, yes. That's gonna be that's gonna be us, except we're gonna be off in a corner podcasting. Like, did you really ever think that you'd meet Jimmy Carter? No, I never thought I'd meet Jimmy Carter. Yeah, I don't know. That didn't make sense. How'd we get on this? You said we didn't have enough time and I said we would be immortal and head in heads and oh, jars. Okay, well, we just wasted more time, so let's get on with uh, <laughs> this actual episode. They were talking about a guy named Robert Stockton. Stockton. That's a place in California. I think it's named after him, so Is it a is it also a prison? I don't I don't know. I'm not up on my prisons. Okay. I, I thought I can probably count on one hand the number of prisons I know of. Okay. Well you know Sing Sing. Sing Sing, Alcatraz, San Quentin, uh Attica, Florence. Okay. That's a supermax prison. Florence? Uh, yeah, it's like in Colorado. It's where they held, like, the Unabomber and, like, the terrorists and stuff. Uh, anyway. Yes. Stockton is a... It's called the California Healthcare Facility. I don't know. I don't know why I thought that all of a sudden, but, yeah. I thought that. Anyways, Robert Stockton. Yes. Uh, so, yeah. So, he's going he's gonna to be our effer-upper for today. But before that, as always... You need some background and some context. Yeah, because you made me wear a Peacemaker shirt today, and I'm not sure why. You'll see. Okay. Early, mid-19th century is about the time we're talking about. Okay. Uh, And at the time, the U.S. Navy uh, was not as powerful as it would be today. Okay. Uh, In the beginning, like, the U.S. had operated a small navy during the Revolutionary War, but it was discontinued in 1785 due to lack of funds. Okay. Okay. Uh, the naval it's expensive. Act of, it's, it's expensive. That's an expensive enterprise. To keep and that was the time the we said the Articles of Confederation, so we couldn't really get money from the states or pay for anything. So we were broke. Yep. Uh, the Naval Act of 1794 reestablished a more permanent force uh, under President John Adams. The Navy was significantly strengthened. If you want to learn more about that, listen to the episode of John Adams on Imperfect Men. Oh, did he help fund the Navy? Listen to that episode of John Adams on Imperfect Men. <laughs> okay. All right. Fair enough. Good plug. Uh, the first major conflicts uh, that the Navy really had a significant role in were the uh, actions against the Barbary pirates in eighteen in the early 1800s and the British during the War of 1812. Uh, after the conflict with Britain concluded, the Navy's primary focus was stopping piracy, mostly in the Caribbean, and interdicting the slave trade. At the time, there was not a dedicated service academy for naval officers, which led to a lack of quality in the officer corps. 
So there wasn't like a naval academy like like today in Annapolis. There's like that just didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, not like you know West Point. You know it was around at this time. There just wasn't a navy equivalent. Yeah, they didn't have that. <clears throat> Which is interesting because I I feel like we took a lot of cues from the British, and the British on the other hand had a very strong navy. Yeah, that I mean that was also just de- developed over decades and decades and right. decades. So, like we just hadn't had that time or experience yet. So mm, got it. Uh, officers gained promotion largely through patronage. Like, mm-hmm. Who you know, you know, are you connected to this guy? You know, are you from this family? Yada yada, that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah, so le- it's not so much like that today, but I definitely see echoes of that in other major navies around that same time. Yeah. Same, like, patronage thing, like, oh, you can be the captain of a ship if you know the admiral or if you know several other captains. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so... Naval technology at this time was also uh, rapidly changing. Uh, up until the mid-19th century, since time immemorial, naval vessels were propelled by wind-driven sail. Mm-hmm. The development of the steam engine in the mid to late 18th century would change this. Uh, so you have like uh, Robert Fulton, uh, the, some of the first steamships, the Claremont in 1807, uh, Early steamships uh, had paddle wheels and were still outfitted with sails in case the steam engine failed. So you would have the kind of this weird mix of like having a paddle wheel, a funnel, and then sails. And then steampunk was born. Kind of. I mean, That's just what I was thinking. Yeah. You were like, yeah, the steam engine. And I was like, and the world was never the same. <laughs> yeah. Uh, early advancements in steamship design included the, included the SS Savannah, the SS Royal William, and the SS Great Western, the first purpose-built transatlantic steamship. Hmm. Okay. I definitely would not have done that. I would not have gotten on a transatlantic steamship. There is no way. Not the first one. <laughs> yeah, definitely not the first one. <laughs> yeah. That's how you get blown up by a steam boiler. They had sails, so, you know, if the engine failed, they could just... I'm not, talking about, power. I'm not talking about the engine failing. I'm talking about it blowing up. That's a possibility. Yeah. Well. Sales can't blow up. Also, side note, uh, like the SS on a ship is for steamship. Mm-hmm. I'm aware. Yeah. Which yeah. is weird because then you have like, you know, you could just slap that on it. That's just like a general naval ship thing nowadays. You can mm-hmm. put that on if it's not like, you know, this isn't run by steam power. So well, yeah. I mean, still HMS for a lot of British ships. His Majesty's ship. Yeah. 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 Still. Um, I you said His Majesty's, and I was like, no, Her Majesty's, and then I was like, dang, I totally forgot that the Queen died, and now we have a king again. Yep. Nobody well, cares. They have a king. N- nobody cares. Yeah. Well, they care, but we don't. They barely care. I think they've done surveys, and they're like, yeah, no. I think the majority of British people don't care. Yeah, not anymore. But um, anyway, uh, at the same time, screw-driven steamships were being developed. The first SS Archimedes set sail in 1839. And I do realize the anachronism of me saying the steamship set sail. (laughs) Um, And by a screw-driven steamship, I mean the engine is, like, instead of driving the paddle wheel on the side of the boat... It's driving the propeller at the back of the at, the, at the stern of the ship. Okay. Because, because like it's essentially the propeller is attached to a giant rod mm-hmm. that is, and it's 
the engine is basically turning that right. in like a screw motion. Mm-hmm. So that's why they're called screw-driven screw, screw steamships. Okay, so, cool. Uh, navies around the world began constructing and fielding screw steamships, including the U.S. Navy. And one of the uh, main drivers behind uh, getting the Navy to more uh, steamships was RF rapper Robert Stockton. Oh, no. Yes. Uh, let me give you a picture of Stockton here before I go into his background. That's a later picture of him from when we're talking about. Whoa, look at those chops. Yeah. So, uh, Stockton had been born in uh, on August 20th, 1795 in Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, his father was a U.S. senator. Of course. Yes. Naturally. Uh, and his grandfather, Richard Stockton, was a signer of the Declaration of Independence... And his grandfather, Richard Stockton, was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. Please listen to the upcoming episode for Richard Stockton on Imperfect Men. Nice. Uh, he was appointed as a midshipman in the Navy in 1811 and served during the War of 1812. So if you do the math, he was 16. Oh my god, okay. Well, wow. when he, well I mean, back then that wasn't out of the ordinary. I know, it's just baffling to me because like, when I was 16... I think I already mentioned this, but I was, like, getting punched in the face at hardcore shows, and this guy is, Well, like, you probably would have done real well in Navy, then. Well, yeah, but I had no idea about anything about a ship. I mean, I barely knew how to open a car door, let alone, you know, captain an entire ship. Well, no one's asking to captain the ship. They're just asking to tie knots. That's probably not the only thing. You probably have to have some working knowledge of, like, being on a boat. Yeah. Which I did not. Anyway, uh, after the war, Stockton participated in the interdiction of slave trading vessels. He helped to negotiate the purchase of land in Africa for the American Colonization Society. This land would later become Liberia. Oh, boy. Yeah. Okay. The attempt to essentially just take all the free black people in the United States and just send them back to Africa. Nothing could go wrong. Okay. Uh, by the 1840s, Stockton was a captain and advocated for the construction of screw-driven steamships, as I mentioned. Mm-hmm. The first of these, USS Princeton, began construction in October 1842. And this is a image of the Princeton. So you can see like, it has the sails, it has the funnel in the middle. Yeah, it's so, But no paddle there. wheels, because it's driven by propellers. But it still, still has sails in case the engine fails it's very weird it seems like it would be really heavy It'd be much heavier than a sail sailboat well i mean you have to re you know if you reinforce the hull i mean yeah. it won't be too bad so but. yeah water displacement's weird i don't understand it yeah um anyway Buoyancy. The, but about how the... does that work <laughs> i don't know yeah exactly same as magnets you don't know how they work i know how they work certain musicians don't know how they work <laughs> um the Princeton was laid down on October 20th, 1842 at the Philadelphia Navy Yard. What does that mean, laid down? Um, they began the construction on it. Because, like, when you, oh. like, the first thing you do is like, you lay down the keel, which okay. is, like, the main, like, backbone. Mm-hmm. So that's just how it's, it's the term for it. Okay, cool. Uh, it was designed as a 700-ton Corvette. So okay. not like your big, huge ship of the line that has all, a whole bunch of cannons, but, you know, smaller ship, mm-hmm. smaller, faster ship. Uh, the lead designer of the ship was John Erickson, 
a Swedish engineer who would go on to design the more famous USS Monitor. Okay. Uh, which was uh, during the Civil War, uh, the first battle between ironclad warships. Okay. Uh, the Monitor and the Merrimack. Um, Monitor was, it was like, the, its whole hull was um, iron. Whoa. So he's, the, he's the guy who designed it. Okay. So, so guy who, you know, has an idea how to design ships. Uh, the Princeton was commissioned on September 9th, 1843 with Stockton in command. Outfitting occurred over the next several weeks, culminating in the installation of two massive guns on January 1st, 1844. These guns were named Oregon and Peacemaker. Oh, I see. I see. I really do wish that we could insert a little bit of the Peacemaker theme here, but we can't. So just imagine it. And if you haven't seen it, go go to YouTube and watch it. Yeah, the... just, just imagine the whole opening intro. Yes, it's fantastic. It's kind of what I'm doing right now. Da, 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 da. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, Oregon, the Oregon gun had been built in England and shipped to the U.S. in 1841. So it had been you know, laying around for a few years. That's good. Uh, it could fire a 225-pound, 12-inch round over five miles. Jesus Christ. So okay. it is, this is a powerful powerful cannon and we actually still have it it still exists today and there it is holy crap it sits outside the entrance to the naval academy in annapolis all right okay so it's the oregon right not the organ oregon like the state yeah okay i wasn't sure if you were saying oregon or oregon like Oh liver. yeah, like or like yeah, Oregon. <laughs> I was like, it doesn't make sense to be Oregon, but also no. the other one's called Peacemaker, and either way, they don't no. really match up. Yeah. Did the names come from them, or did the names come from the British? When they I built didn't them? look up. Well, I'm getting to who made. Each. They weren't made together. Oh okay. Uh, I don't know who made. I don't know who named them. Oh, you don't know who named them, so no, it I could didn't. be the person who made it, or it could be the person who fitted it I, into the ship. I don't know. Man, that'd be a cool job yeah. to name cannons. <laughs> anyway, um, so uh, Stockton had wanted a second large gun because Oregon is like, you know, the biggest gun on the ship. We well, wanted another one. And he commissioned Peacemaker from an American engineer. Peacemaker was not as advanced as Oregon. Okay. Because, like, you know, this you know English manufactured gun, the English have been making these for quite a long time for numerous ships in their navy okay american engineers didn't quite have quite the same amount of experience so was there a specific reason why they didn't just have get two from the british or well remember this organ gun had been laying around for a little while okay and also is probably just something where it's like well we we, we can we can do it just as good okay i see the point of pride and stockton he rushed construction because he wanted it as soon as possible and it wasn't tested that much of course it wasn't tested because number one thing that happens when you rush something is it doesn't get tested yeah Uh, and this is where he f's up because oh no yeah because this gun you're about to find out it needed a lot more testing no could it shoot a bullet or we'll we'll get into that uh, eager to show off the ship to important dignitaries, President John Tyler organized a demonstration cruise for February 28, 1844. Uh, Tyler, he hosted a reception for Stockton at the White House on February 27th. Whoa, this and, was, so this was like a big deal. Oh, yeah. Is, well, it was brand party. new. Well, it's, it's his first uh, screw-driven steamship. 
There's powerful guns on it. He wants to show it off. Oh, okay. So, uh, reception at the White House on the 27th, and they take a cruise down the Potomac the following day. Okay. Uh, it would take Princeton down past Mount Vernon, uh, just down, down the Potomac, before returning to Alexandria. Numerous VIPs were on the trip, including President Tyler, several members of his cabinet, some important senators, former First Lady Dolly Madison, and other various important guests. Oh no, this is shaping up to be awful. Wanting to show off his big gun. As you do. Yeah, I mean, as you would. If, you, if hey, if you got it, flaunt it. Uh, Stockton fired Peacemaker three times on the trip downriver, after which most of the guests went below deck for lunch. On the trip back up the Potomac, Thomas Gilmer, the Secretary of the Navy, uh, suggested firing the gun one more time when they passed Mount Vernon as a salute to Washington. Oh, no. Because, for some reason, firing a gun is a salute to somebody. I've never understood that. Yeah, it's like a, it's a thing. I don't know. Uh, I, just, I never really questioned it. I don't get it. Uh, several of the VIPs were on hand to witness the firing. President Tyler, however, was below deck, which we'll get to in just a moment. Mm-hmm. When Stockton pulled the firing lanyard, because, like, you know, it's just kind of a string. You pull the string and it fires right. once it's ready. Once he pulls the firing lanyard, the gun exploded along the left side. Oh, no. Twenty people were injured and six were killed. Oh, my gosh. Armist- the six were killed were Armistead, a slave serving as Tyler's valet. Oh, no. Virgil Maxey and David Gardiner, uh, two prominent lawyers. Beverly Kennan, the head of the Navy's Ship Management Bureau. Thomas Gilmer, the Secretary of the Navy, who had been appointed to the post only nine days beforehand. Wow. And the most consequential death, Abel Upshur, the Secretary of State. Oh, no. And here is a a contemporary image of what it looked like. Yep. Just about what you would imagine. It's pretty bad. Yep. But Stockton was not killed. No, well, he was on the opposite side because, like, he's pulling it from the right. It exploded, like out, oh. like out along the left side of the gun. Oh, okay. So, uh, the gun exploded because of its inferior engineering and construction when compared to the Oregon gun. Oh no! Yeah. So. Wow. Uh, I'm not gonna get into the details of the engineering because, frankly, I didn't understand a lot of it. If it you sounded like more, it blew through the side, the sidewall of the cannon. It did. Yeah. Okay. It's like I don't fully understand like why this was defective or like the the metal making works. I don't get that. So if you're curious and you understand it, you can look it up for yourself. Yeah. But point being, you need to know, gun went boom, <laughs> but went boom in the wrong direction. <laughs> yeah. So. Gun was faulty. Yes. Gun blew up. Many people died. Uh, the repeated firings had not given the gun enough time to cool. Um, and the heat of each blast compounded to weaken the metal leading to the explosion. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine that a so, cannon probably needs some time to rest. Ty- uh, President Tyler was not on deck because he was downstairs wooing Julia Gardiner, the daughter of one of the lawyers who had been killed. Oh no, my gosh. Was John Tyler married? Savage. Uh, Julie Gardiner had previously rebuffed Tyler's advance. Oh, uh, my his, gosh. His first wife, Letitia, had died in September 1842. Okay. So, so recently. Yes. Uh, but Julia agreed to marry him after the incident, June, doing so in June 1844. She was 24. He was 54. Oh, boy. Savage. Yeah, oh, 
You think that's a little gross. Oh my gosh. I have to hear a direct quote from Julie about the matter. No, I don't know how you feel about this. Okay. Quote, After I lost my father, I felt differently toward the president. He seemed to fill the place and to be more agreeable in every way than any younger man ever was or could be. End quote. Uh, that's really gross. Okay. She wanted a daddy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, also, he was probably like, wow, I just came into contact, very close contact with almost being exploded. Yeah. So maybe I should not be such an idiot. Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, it's... It's, uh, it's icky. 30 it's very years icky. is a lot. And yeah. t- she was only 24 and he was 54. And that's two very different stages yep. in your life. But maybe he was like, you know what? I think I, I think he may have had children that were older than her. Oh. Okay, let's continue. He was the one who had like 15 children, so... Wow. Yeah. So. I did not know that. He was the one who had a grandchild who was recently alive. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Who used to... We saw that thing on Twitter where yeah. the person used to do yard work for his grandson. Yeah. Who died at like 96 just a few years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, Gilmer was replaced as Secretary of the Navy by John Mason, but the more consequential appointment was Upshur's selection as Secretary of State, John C. Calhoun. Also a president? No. Okay. Yep. Thank God he was not. <laughs> oh, because I, I feel like this name sounds really familiar. Oh, it, well, it should be like this era of history. Calhoun was a probably one of the more consequential figures who was not president. Okay, has um, he been featured in any of our other episodes? Uh, possibly. I don't remember offhand. Wow. Um, very, very, very pro-slavery. I knew you were going to say that. Somehow I knew. Yes. Um, if, if you listen to Talos Rankium, you are familiar with Calhoun and his volcano lair. Um, volcano lair? Yeah, basically he looks enough like a villain, they decided he has a volcano lair. I feel like I've seen a picture of you this have, dude before. You have, because okay. I think I've showed it to you, because we just watched, recently we just watched Amistad, which has him in it for a scene, and I was explaining him to you, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, yep. very states' rights, very pro-slavery. Right. This man is now Secretary of State. Okay. He's got a real pointy, weird face. He looks like a cartoon character. He looks like a crazy man. Yeah. So. We don't say crazy, we say rowdy. Yep, just keep going. He's crazy. Um, The day before the explosion, Upshur had agreed to the draft treaty of annexation with the Republic of Texas. Because okay. this is about the time when the little Texas issue is coming up. Tyler had expected Upshur to quietly garner support for the treaty in the Senate. While Tyler would expect the same of Calhoun, he would be sorely disappointed. Oh, no. Calhoun, as he did with just about every issue, made annexation about the existence, expansion, and survival of slavery. Because the man was a one-trick pony. Oh, no. The debate over annexation soon became embroiled in the ever-present debate over slavery. Tyler signed the treaty on April 18, 1844, and submitted it to the Senate shortly thereafter. Calhoun attempted to bully northern senators into supporting annexation by pushing fears that if the U.S. didn't annex Texas, Great Britain would. Okay. Yeah, don't, don't ask me again of that. It's a tangled web of 
international related. I'm not going to get into that oh, part. Oh boy, of it, okay. Um, I wasn't going to ask. I was just yeah. like, that sounds n- yeah incorrect, but okay. Calhoun's tactics failed. The Senate rejected the treaty 16 votes for, 35 against, on June 8th. Oh no. The rejection of the treaty turned the presidential election of 1844 into a referendum on annexation. The Democrats nominated pro-annexation James K. Polk over anti-annexation and previous president Martin Van Buren, who was trying to run again, uh, while the Whigs nominated Henry Clay, who was ambiguous on the issue. Oh, boy. Tyler, who had been expelled from the Whig Party in 1841, had hoped to run a third-party campaign on the annexation issue, but pulled out and backed Polk. Polk won the 1844 election, and Texas was admitted to the Union on December 29, 1845, via a joint resolution. So it wasn't... It's kind of an illegal gray area whether or not it was, like, really legal to do it that way. Because okay. it was its own separate country, mm-hmm. and tip- and typically relations with another country refi- require a treaty, sure. which requires a two-thirds ratification by the Senate. A joint resolution was just like, oh, a majority of each house, and mm-hmm. the president signs it. So it's like, is it entirely legal? I mean, uh, you could look at the Hawaii, yeah. the position of Hawaii in the same... It wasn't a joint resolution, but... yeah. Like, did we have any business saying, hey, it's a state now? Yeah, well. Oh, but, the United States. Yep. But yeah, so so like if, you know, that explosion doesn't happen, does annexation become, you know, Upshur was a little more low-key than John C. Calhoun. Mm-hmm. Um, crazy-eyed madman John C. Calhoun. So is he able to push it through the Senate? Does he, you know, he's not going to antagonize the Northern Senators. So do they vote for it? And is it a done deal by the election? You know, how does that shape that election? Does Polk win? Because Polk came out of nowhere mm-hmm. because the Democrats were deadlocked um, on the issue. They were, Van Buren was trying to run again. Um, and James K. Polk was like really the first dark horse candidate to come, just come out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And Polk was... You know, one of the architects of the Mexican-American War. Oh boy! So wow! So on and so forth. So yeah. So like pretty ha- far-reaching. Yes. Effects here. Yeah. So, but wow. What ifs? Yeah. Um, a naval court of inquiry cleared anyone of wrongdoing or malfeasance. Of course. Yeah. Uh, Princeton continued to serve in the Navy until her decommissioning in October 1849, and she was broken up shortly thereafter. Uh, The ship's bell is near the Princeton Battle Memorial in Princeton, New Jersey, which memorializes the 1777 Battle of Princeton. Okay. It's the most times I've ever used the word Princeton in a sentence before. (laughs) Uh, The Oregon gun, as I've showed you, is on display at the entrance to the Naval Academy in Annapolis. Uh, Stockton would be tasked by President Polk to convey the annexation agreement to Texas in 1845. So it's like, hey, take this to them. Tell them they're not a country anymore. Oh, I man. own them. I rule you, Texas. Well, yeah, he was Southern. He was from Tennessee. I rule you, Texas. Oh, boy. So. That was more of a Georgia thing or northern Louisiana. Not so much Tennessee. Because uh, the South, it's all the same to me. Uh, um, He, uh, wow. 
<laughs> Voice breaking. Cody turned 13. <laughs> We're talking about the history today. Um, anyway, Stockton, he would serve as the military governor of California, which, like we kind of alluded to earlier. Okay. Uh, following its conquest from Mexico during the Mexican-American War. So this is the time, but like before even the war is over, you know, before California is... A state. Know, even even a part of the United States legally, because mm-hmm. like we haven't signed a treaty yet, yet or anything. I see. So he's like the military governor of it. Okay, you said military governor, and I was like, I don't know what that yeah. is. Okay. Yeah. So cool. Uh, before retiring from the Navy in 1850, the rank of Commodore, Commodore, which isn't a rank that exists anymore. Nope. Which is so unfortunate because that would be so badass. Yeah. Dude. Which is which is dumb because it's like just like your one star flag officer. Just call that a Commodore because. Both the one and two stars are both called rear admirals. It's like, that's confusing. Just call the one star a commodore. It's dumb. Yeah. Navy. You dumb. Fix it. Anyway. um, Stockton would serve as a U.S. senator from New Jersey in 1851 to 53 before dying in October 1866. Okay. Following the disaster... The Navy instituted stricter gun or stricter regulations on gun manufacturing, leading to safer cannons. Well, I mean, which would also kind of lend itself to artillery, mm-hmm. and not just naval cannons, which would help during the Civil War. Didn't would really wouldn't really want our cannons exploding during a battle. So yeah, I was gonna say that's good. Yeah, because the I was gonna say something cheeky about safer guns, but I'm not going to. Yeah, so. And, of course, the Peacemaker gun was, you know, the remains of it were destroyed, so. Yeah, I would imagine that nobody wanted a reminder of the failure, mm. especially yeah. considering it was made in America. Exactly. So. Um, sources for this. Edward Beach's The U.S. Navy, A 200-Year History from 1986. John Brockman's Commodore Robert Stockton from 2009. Edward Craples, John Tyler, the accidental president from 2006, Frederick Merck, History of the Westward Movement from 1978, Dorothy and Carl Schneider, First Ladies, a biographical directory from 2010, where I got that quote from, that weird daddy quote, <laughs> uh, and Carrie Walters, Explosion on the Potomac from 2013. Nice. Uh, again, in lieu of feedback, when we don't have it, please leave us some feedback. Uh, I will recommend a podcast. Uh, this one isn't directly related to what we talked about or even really incidentally related um but it's covers kind of this time frame uh it's called age of victoria you know it's set during victoria's reign mm-hmm. so and this is during victoria's reign so makes sense yeah so go listen to it pretty good cool um what are we talking about next time we're moving ahead uh, it, it also involves a naval vessel okay but it's during WW2, uh, a little incident with a ship called the SS Automedon. I don't know how you say it. I think it's like A-U-T-O-A-B-D-O-N. Automedon? Probably Automedon. Automedon? Automedon. I like Automedon. <laughs> you like to say it wrong? Yeah. Okay. Automedon. And a, a, a passenger on it called Violet Ferguson. All right. And her need to have her tea set. Okay, this is very interesting. Mm -hmm. All right, I'm down. All right, we'll check it out next time.
Please be sure to check out our other projects, The Drunken Pawn, where we play board games and drink on YouTube, uh, Attack of the Final Girls, my sister podcast project with my lovely pod wife, Juliet, where we talk about horror movies. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WeFedUp, no spaces. Be sure to rate and review us wherever you listen. Until next time, I'm Teresa. I'm Cody. And this is We, we Up. up.